The first thing I want to tell you this morning is that um, it'll be a little longer sermon than usual. I know that. Now you know that. And I think it's worth it. I think what is at stake this morning in this passage is your hope and your confidence in regards to heaven. I don't know what could be more important for us to give our time and our lives and our attention to than what Christ has done and our dwelling with God in heaven. The title of today's sermon is, Am I Going to Quote Heaven? Put heaven in quotes. Am I going to quote heaven? Can I have the confidence that I or anyone will dwell with God forever? This is the question that we should be asking. The question that often gets asked is, will I go to heaven? The question we're going to answer this morning is, can I have confidence that I or anyone will dwell with God forever? In some ways, I find preparing for this week, preaching about heaven more difficult than last week's sermon and preaching about hell. People put their hope in heaven. What do we think about heaven? What we wish for heaven? Confidence about going to heaven? It's at the core of what we think and hope when we face death. I'm sure you've heard of a song by Eric Clapton called Tears in Heaven. I'm not going to sing it. His original music video for that song has garnered almost 100 million views. Written with Will Jennings about the death of his four-year-old son, Connor, who on March 20th, 1991, at the age of four, died after falling from the 53rd floor window of a New York City apartment. The song, Tears in Heaven, is about a four-year-old son. I Can Only Imagine by Bart Millard now has over 550 million views. Once Millard started writing this song, he said he estimated that it took him only about 10 minutes to write the entire lyrics. The song was written, and by the way, that's not normal. The song was written in response to Bart's father who had abused him and his family early on, but who later, after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer when he was 16, began reading the Bible and going to church regularly before passing away when he was just 18. Maybe you've heard the song Dancing in the Sky by the Vancouver twin sisters Danny and Lizzie. It's garnered up over 100 million views on various postings and recordings. The chorus says, I hope you're dancing in the sky and I hope you're singing in the angels' choir and I hope the angels know what they have. It'll be, I'll bet it's so nice up in heaven since you arrived. Written by Lizzie after one of her friends died. All of our songs of heaven, the church, 
and out are deeply, deeply tied to hope in death. Well, are they in heaven? Will they be? Will you? Or will I? How can we have confidence that I or you or anyone will dwell with God forever? I think that's what Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4, helping us answer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us today so that what is spoken here is your word. Father, I confess I'm a man trying to preach your word, and I pray that it would be done by the power of the Holy Spirit here in my preaching of it and in the hearing of it so that we who hear would have eyes to see Christ, would have ears to hear Christ, would have souls to have faith and receive Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, crucified for our sins, risen from the grave, that we might have hope, confidence, that we can dwell with you forever. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today's sermon essentially has two movements. I wouldn't really call them two points, two movements. One, the meaning of the new heaven, the new earth, and the city. The meaning of the new heaven, the new earth, and the city. And then finally, toward the end of our sermon, one application. How can we have confidence that we will dwell with God forever? There are so many different ways that this chapter in Revelation could take us. It is picking up so much of the Bible and wrapping it up with a bow, chapters 21 and 22. We're simply going to be applying this one thing, this one question which I think most people wonder about and most people hope heaven will mean for them. That is the question of whether or not they or their loved ones or anyone will be there. So that's the one application. How can we have confidence that we will dwell with God forever? Chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. First, the new heaven and the new earth. John says, I'll read again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the last heaven For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New heaven, new earth, new city, the holy city. How can there be a new heaven How can there be a new heaven? I don't know that that makes sense to us upon first reading. Well, let me say, heaven is not that final resting place for Christians. It is most certainly not the golf course up in the sky. It's not the racetrack or the concert or the fishing pond. It's not up there. It's not a family reunion that we all automatically go to simply by virtue of dying and believing that such a place exists It is not a place where humans get their wings and become angels. A theological friend of mine, I've only met him once, a 
brother in Christ named Sam Amadi gives us a wonderful introduction to the idea of what heaven is through the whole Bible. I'm going to use his words. I feel like they were helpful more than I could clarify myself. He says, A biblical theology of heaven, a thinking about heaven from beginning to end, a biblical theology of heaven begins in the first verse of the Bible. God creates the, quote, heavens and earth. While heavens are simply, heavens often simply refers to the sky in Genesis 1.20, for example, throughout Scripture it also refers to God's holy realm, His spatial abode populated with righteous angels. The heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1 therefore is a word pair delineating the entire created order. A created order that houses two distinct realms, heaven and earth. Now that makes the Bible make so much more sense from beginning to end. It confuses us when we think that heaven is the final eternal dwelling for Christians. And then John, first thing he sees right here in chapter 21 is the first thing I saw is a new heaven. This heaven is a created place by which God designs earthly places. The garden, the tabernacle of Moses, the temple, for example, those things on earth serve as copies of things in heaven. There are two places, and one has copies of the other. So we see in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, speaking about where Jesus applied his blood in heaven, it says, They, those earthly tabernacles and temples, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, Moses, you're going to go build the tabernacle, and it's going to be based on the pattern that I'm showing you, which is a pattern of the true tabernacle, the true dwelling place of God in heaven. In other words, like there were two mirror realities, the heavenly throne and the earthly tabernacle. God's interaction in the earthly tabernacle, the sacrifice, the the worship between men and God is to mirror the parallel heavenly reality. So what's the point for John? Just like John saw death and Hades be destroyed in the last chapter, now earth and heaven are no more. Now that first set, that first duo, heaven and earth, he says, have passed away Instead, what is there? A new heaven, a new earth. And what is the relationship between this new heaven and this new earth? The old earth had copies of old heavens. But watch the relationship between the new earth and the new heaven. Chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven From God. In the old creation order, the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, and the temple, they were copies of heavenly things where God would dwell on the earth in some way. Two parallel realities, but in the new created order of the new heavens and new earth, there are no copies of heaven in earth. The city of heaven is coming down. To earth. 
A whole city coming down out of heaven from earth. Not a tent, not a tabernacle, not a temple. The city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. No more miniature copies of heaven on earth. No more heavenly reality up there and earthly reality down here with its copies. The garden, the tabernacle, the temple. What did Hebrews call them? Copies, shadows. Hebrew says. But now the holy is coming down. What's the point? Heaven and earth will now be found at the same address. You deliver a package to the heavenly city of God, it gets delivered to earth from now on. If you go live in the heavenly city after Revelation 21, where do you live? On earth. You put your feet on the ground, on the earth. You put your feet on heaven's ground. Your steps into the holy city. Where are they? Steps on earth. He says the sea was no more in verse 1. What's the point of the sea being no more? I take it to mean the description here is symbolic. That we will lose evil and chaos. That these ancient people associated with the sea Consider the sea in regards to Noah. Consider the sea in regards to Egypt and the Egyptians. Consider the sea in light of Job and Daniel and Isaiah. And even Revelation where the beast comes from. The removal of the sea means the permanent removal of all the challengers to God's order. Heaven's city is on earth and there will no longer be any other power, no other force, no enemies to challenge Nothing coming out of the sea to bring chaos and sin and opposition to God and His rule and His order. Satan, the false prophets, and those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life have been thrown into the lake of fire. Why is the city adorned then as a bride? Look in chapter 21 verse 2. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, have you been to a wedding? If you've not been to a wedding, let's just say one thing that happens is the bride looks good. She gets done up. The first date that Colette and I ever had, I don't even know if you could call it a date, she invited herself over to my house in college. She showed up in uh, wind pants and a t-shirt to make pancakes, which is fine. The woman could have shown up shoeless in a burlap bag, and I would have tried to marry her. But the day that we got married, well, it was different. She looked different. She's herself, but she was adorned for a day that we'd been waiting and waiting for. John looks at the city and it says, it's like a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven's city is coming like the bride adorned at the back of the aisle, and all the waiting is over, pure, spotless, holy. All the engagement time is over. All the saying, one day, one day, all that's over. Now the bride is adorned, coming down the aisle, heaven's city, coming down the aisle to earth. It's been waiting to get to earth, and now it's the day. What does all this mean? It is 
new. The word is kainos. It usually indicates newness in quality or essence, not just newness of time, not a new time, not a new era, but a new kind of thing, a transformed thing. Everything about this place is going to be new. New earth, new heaven. This time, no copies. No copies of things. This time, the city comes down from heaven, from God, down to earth. And there's no chaos. There's no deep darkness lurking in the sea to rise up and challenge God. His challenges have all been overthrown, and the city is adorned like a bride, holy. But that's all just about place. That's not even the good part. It's not even the point. The main point is that God dwells with man forever. He sees and then he hears, chapter 20, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What is the point? God's dwelling with man again is the final fix of all sin's effect. God's dwelling with man again is the final fix, the final correction, the the, the final getting back, the final redemption of all sin's effect. We think of heaven as no more pain, no more tears, no more mourning, as if that in itself is the final aim. Well, in a sense that it is, but it is not just a place where there is no cancer. It's not just a place where we don't cry anymore. Be very careful. It's better than that. Everything short of the true hope in heaven is a cheap, Short-falling, prosperity, not true, not biblical, heaven. Christian and non-Christian songs have been written about such places for a long time. But what does it matter if God does not dwell there? God dwelling with man is the fix of the root problem Of all of our problems. Go with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 verse 20 through 24. This is where it began to go all wrong. Where we began to sin. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God has commanded Adam not to eat of the tree. Of the knowledge of good and evil. That if he did he would die. Eve was deceived, he ate, they both were ashamed, they went to hide from God. See how God responds. 
Chapter 3, verse 20 through 24, God gives curses on the serpent, curses on the woman, curses on the man, curses creation, the very ground they'd come from. And here's God's temporary dealing with man. Galatians 3, 20 to 24, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife's garments for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. He covered them. They had clothed themselves with leaves. God clothed them with garments of skins. Now the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take hold of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Every problem that we have stems from this problem. Man is separated from God because of our sin against God. God, therefore, is in heaven. Man is on earth. God is holy. Man now is sinful. In Genesis 3, God is in the garden. Man is out of the garden. And it is Jesus who ultimately comes to forever fix that problem. We have sinned against God. We cannot dwell together. Otherwise, we would face judgment. Think about it this way. When we look into the Garden of Eden, was God in heaven or was God in earth? Where is God? God, are you in the garden? God's answer would be yes, but you are not. Man has been driven out. The whole point is, listen, Adam, you cannot come home. Eve, you cannot come home. You have sinned greatly. You cannot come home to be with God because God is holy. He cannot allow sin unpunished in his presence because he is holy and just. So rather than leave you in his presence to face his God creator on the throne judge judgment, he graciously sends Adam and Eve out. And it is a good thing that he did. Otherwise, it would be Adam and Eve before the throne in their sin. And they would be judged. But this is the first step in God's grand plan. Save them from death right then. So God sent them out, covered them with animal skin as a foreshadowing of what was to come. Man is no longer dwelling with God. And the garden then is an example. The first beginning, the cherubim is guarding heaven and earth. Where God is and where man is, is separated and it is guarded and it is impassable. Don't, don't think about taking a charging run at the cherubim with the flaming sword. It, it's guarded. You can't go because of our sin. And then comes the tabernacle. Yes, we just skipped a lot of scripture. Then comes the tabernacle. God had chosen a people among the nations, Israel. God saves his chosen people from Egypt, from their slavery, from their bondage. And he calls on Moses to build a tent. They called it the tabernacle. 
We have to think about the tabernacle. God, are you in the tabernacle? Is God who dwells in heaven, is he in the tabernacle? God's answer is yes, but I only talk to Moses. Go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, verse 9. Exodus chapter 33, verse 9, where we read about this tabernacle that Moses, the, one of the intermediaries between God and the people of Israel at the time, not a final saving intermediary, obviously, but someone who meets with God on behalf of the people. Exodus 33, verse 9. Moses has brought the people out. They've got the law. They're going in toward the promised land. Now they have this tabernacle, which is where they meet with God. The whole second half of the book of Exodus is what to do, how to make this tabernacle. Exodus 33, verse 9, and then we're going to read the larger passage. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now, isn't that great? Isn't that great? God's with his people. He's with Israel. He's, he's there talking to Moses. He's there in the tent. But actually, the tent is still signifying the problem of Genesis 3. God is not there dwelling with his people. Look at Exodus 30, 33, but look back at verses 7 and read through 11. Exodus 33, 7 through 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. Not close to the people, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Moses would go outside of the people, outside the camp, to meet with God. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Is that a good thing? Is this good? Well, it's good. It's kind of a problem getting better from Genesis 3. It's better than Genesis 3, but it's still a problem getting better. Better than the Garden of Eden? Yeah. All better yet? No. The problem, the tabernacle itself, is not with the people. It's away from the people. Keep reading in verse 8. Exodus 33, verse 8. Whenever Moses went out, of, out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and they would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. This is a problem. It's good that God is with the people, but notice there is a cloud between the people and God. The Lord speaks with Moses. The people were kept out. Verse 10. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Now that is really good. It's good. God chose a people. He's dwelling with his people, yet they're all outside. Verse 11 Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face a man, as a man speaks to his friend when Moses turned again into the camp. His assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. I've thought about these words, and if these words are not really that helpful to you, then I'm happy to recant and rewrite and preach this sermon next week again, okay? But it's kind of like, I'm only using this because I think it will be helpful for you to think it's kind of like the tabernacle is serving as a portal between heaven and earth. I'm trying to make sense of two spaces and earth, heaven and earth, make sense to us. God's dwelling, his home, his abode is in heaven. 
But there were these earthly copies, this tabernacle was, which Moses modeled after the pattern that he was shown on the mountain. And God comes down into that copy, but it is very limited. It is just Moses. It's smoke that keeps the people out. It keeps the separation between God and the people. So I'm, I'm not into Marvel. I, I've seen parts of some of them, is the best I can probably say. But one of the Marvel characters I know has the power to create, I had to look it up. I don't know what, you, what the people in Marvel world call it. But there's one character, I think it's Doctor Strange, who has the power to kind of whip up the spin fire hole thing where you can go from one dimension to another. It looks like, um, what, do you, what do you have on fire on 4th of July? It looks just like sparklers, you know, like that's a big deal. Apparently online they refer to that hole that he creates with sparklers, an interdimensional portal that acts as a mystical wormhole, creating a gateway between two locations in space and time. I think that's Doctor Strange. Marvel is really not that creative. I'm looking at the tabernacle as this place on earth where God in heaven meets with one man, Moses, as face to face, but outside the camp and sometimes. So is God here? Sometimes in the tabernacle with Moses. <laughs> it's the problem getting better. We can begin to look at the temple the same way, that permanent structure built in the city, not outside, in the city, replica, the permanent structure of that tabernacle. We might ask, God, are you there? Are you in the temple? Are you dwelling in heaven or are you in the temple? And God says, yes, but you must bring blood and only send one priest once a year into the room where I dwell. Only the high priest, Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, can come in to the holy of holies every year where God is said to dwell. And if he brings blood, he won't die. Only priests once a year, and that for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, so that God can continue to dwell in that inner part of the temple. Well, praise God, now it's in the city. Now it's a permanent building of rock. Now it's in the promised land. Is it all better? No, it's a problem getting better. Still a problem because God is in there, but he's not fully dwelling all over the earth. God is still in that room where not everyone can go. And we should be reminded here this moment that in the temple, there was that great curtain between the holy place and that most holy place where God was said to dwell. And what was sown in that curtain that was 60 foot high? What was the... What was the picture sewn and woven into that curtain? Cherubim. The same beings that were described as standing between God, between the garden and Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The temple was that picture of the garden. The problem seems to be getting better, but the problem is still there. 
What do the winged cherubim mean? The portal's closed. There's no you coming back in and out into being with God. This space is heaven's space. This is holy ground. So the only way that you can come into it when God creates a copy of it on the earth is by blood that cleanses your sin. In other words, when you walk in, if you do not walk in with blood, you walk straight into your judgment. This brings us to Jesus. What did Jesus' coming to the earth mean? And what does it have to do with heaven and earth? Go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Fourth gospel puts you on page... 886, if you're in your house Bibles. This is the way John, the disciple, the beloved disciple, introduces us to Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is the Word? Who? It's God. Obviously, God is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is the Creator. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You can only say that about God. But watch what John says in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. That's describing Jesus' incarnation. His birth into being a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt. That Word is tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from... Where's He come from? Where's this guy from? From the Father, full of grace and truth. Now... Instead of there being a portal, if you will allow me the word, the image helps me, in the tabernacle and and inside the cloud and, and inside behind the cherubim sewn curtains, now instead of God being there, God has tabernacled in the flesh, in the body, in man. The man stepped through the portal, as it were, and is here. And the people start asking questions about Jesus. He starts doing miracles. He starts saying things about himself that are really weird. And they start asking him, are you the son of God? Who are you? Who do you say that you are? Basically looking Jesus in the eyes and saying, God, are you in there? 
And instead of looking at the buildings and the tabernacle and the temple and saying, God, are you in there? Now we're looking at a person in the eyes, a man with a face, and saying, God, are you in there? And Jesus speaks back, I am. Jesus is like an alien. He, he's a man, but he's from somewhere else. Jesus is a man, but he's, he's not just from earth. He's from heaven. He's a man of earth, but he's from heaven. He, God in heaven had a son born on the earth. The Holy Spirit of heaven conceived a virgin woman here on the earth, and Jesus was born. Which is why Jesus said, destroy this temple, this one, and in three days I will raise it up. John says a few verses later in John 2.21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Why did Jesus come here? What's the point of this God-man, this Son of God? Why did Jesus come as God in heaven's Son, born on earth? Jesus came to break down the whole barrier between heaven and earth. To deal with the very reason that heaven and earth can't be the same place since Genesis 3. To deal with the whole reason that God placed cherubim with flaming swords to keep mankind out of the garden. The whole reason that, Mo that God would meet with Moses but would keep a cloud and not let the people near or up the mountain for that matter, lest they die. The whole reason that there's a temple with the curtain with the cherubim on it saying, you cannot come in. When Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He essentially went back to the garden and told, told the guards, guys, great job. You've protected heaven from sinful man. You've kept Adam and his children from getting back in here to God and facing their judgment. But guys, I will take it from here. And instead of there being cherubim guarding, blocking the way, man's way, back into God's presence, from man to God, now instead there is the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is a man. The Son of Heaven, who came to earth in order to make a way for men on earth to be back with God, who is in heaven. Jesus died on the cross. He came to deal with the problem in the first place, the problem of our separation from God, our sin, man's sin. Jesus comes to take away sin. And Jesus came so that God does not have to dwell in a tent out there, stay behind the cloud. Instead, God can come near without judging and punishing us. We can come near God without fearing his judgment and his punishment. Jesus came to solve the problem that God is present in the temple, but still behind the curtain, still behind the cherubim and seraphim, limited to that holy room. And Jesus came to be the portal, if you will, between man and God. Jesus is the way to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, 22, explains it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, who would have confidence to enter the holy places? 
Who has confidence to enter where God is? Who has confidence to say, you know, I know there's this terrible with the flaming sword, but you know what? I'm just going to give it a shot. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, there's portal language, through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, the home, the dwelling, the, the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean. We didn't have an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So now all who trust in Jesus Christ, all who trust in Jesus, you can be in fellowship with God spiritually by trusting that he died for your sin, that he rose from the grave, paying the penalty for your sin, inviting you to new life by believing in him. When you put your faith in Jesus, he died on the cross to take away your sins. He, he died the death that we all deserve from the garden forward that God delayed so that we could have faith and that Jesus could redeem us from the death that we deserve by washing away our sins with his blood. Even though you live here on earth, if you are believing in Jesus, your sins are washed away and you are fit for heaven. The cherubim don't have to guard you and keep you out anymore. You won't be thrown into the lake of fire. Your sins are forgiven if you trust that God in his love sent his son from heaven to shed his blood on the earth so that his blood could be applied for you in heaven. So instead of cherubim and seraphim keeping you out, <clears throat> instead of the cloud keeping you out and Moses going in, instead of worshiping from outside, instead of the curtain keeping you out from the Holy of Holies, through Jesus, we can go to God. Jesus stood where the heavenly guardians used to keep people out and by his blood invites us in to God. Believer, do you understand the magnitude of what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ? He has not just secured your personal justification. He has broken down the barrier between heaven and earth. He has broken down the reason man cannot dwell with God in the garden, period. Be amazed, be strengthened, be encouraged and in awe of your own salvation. If you came here today and you're not trusting in Christ, consider how in the world you would plan to reconcile with God. What, like Christ, could pay for your sins on earth and be applied to your debt to God in heaven? Jesus has risen from the grave. He ascended into heaven where he applied his blood into God's very presence, not in the copy, in the presence of God. What other options do you have between heaven and earth but to trust God's Son crucified for you? Consider Him and trust Him today. Here is the deal. Is Jesus dying on the cross for sins the final good? No. Is Jesus resurrecting from the grave the final good? No. Is Jesus coming back to conquer the final good like we saw in Revelation 19 and 20? No. It's still the problem getting better. It's getting better. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could be forgiven only in the earthly realm. 
There's heaven where God is. And through time, God has come into the tabernacle. He's been in the temple and then in Christ. And by His Spirit, we could talk about how He dwells in God's people. But heaven is still there and earth is still here. God's dwelling is still there and man's dwelling is still here. Jesus has secured forgiveness of our sins in heaven. But heaven is still one place and earth is still another place. God still dwells there, man still dwells here. Now read Revelation 21, 1 through 3 again. What's God doing? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and that sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Problem solved. Heaven and earth are one place. No portals, no copies, No, here but not yet, just here. Just God dwells with man. What makes that possible? Only the Son of the living God from heaven, coming to earth as a man, putting himself on the cross for the sins of all mankind, that we might be forgiven in earth and in heaven. Here's a question. Will I or anyone dwell with God forever? First of all, let me clarify again. This is a better question to ask. Are my loved ones in heaven? Will I go to heaven? Is to generally relate people to places which tend in Christian and secular cultures to get morally and spiritually abstract. What is heaven? What is that place? Funerals over and over gets turned into that fishing hole up in the sky. The great golf links in the sky. It really comes down to are you in to play one of two places? Are you in heaven or hell? Are you in a good place or are you in a bad place? That's not really the main question. That question ignores the real problem. The problem is that we have sinned, that there was a heaven and earth, and there was a heaven and a hell because of our sin against God. The question is will I dwell where God dwells forever? Two answers. One, Yes, if you trust in Jesus Christ as God's Son. If you trust in Jesus Christ, all your earthly allegiances, get rid of all your earthly hopes, trust that the only hope that God can forgive you is that God sent His Son from heaven. Right, isn't that our most popular Christian verse for churches? God so loved the world that He sent his son. 
If you believe in Him, you will not perish. Your sins will be forgiven in earth and in heaven. You will be forgiven of your sins. You will, like Jesus Christ was resurrected, you will be raised, and you will dwell with God forever when, after doing away with evil, after doing away with Satan, after all those names who are not written in the book of life have been thrown into the lake of fire, after the old heaven and old earth pass away, after there is a new heaven and a new earth, and after there's no more sea to mess it up, yes, if you trust in Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, and you will dwell with God forever. If you do not, and if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will not dwell with God forever. You will be cast out and thrown into the lake of fire forever. This is the word of the Lord. So that's a fact. Trust Christ. You will come back to dwell with God forever. But the first question I asked today was actually slightly different. Can I be confident that I or anyone else will dwell with God forever? Can I be confident on earth that I or anyone else will dwell with God forever? Being saved is one thing. Someone else being saved is another. Being confident that you are saved and that someone else is saved is another I want you to go with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I'll give you a sentence. Confidence for dwelling with God forever is normally tied to proximity to church membership in a local church that preaches forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ and practices church membership and discipline. (laughs) I have a feeling this is one of the last sentences you might have thought was coming up today. Confidence for dwelling with God forever is normally tied to proximity to the church membership in a local church that preaches forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, and practices church membership and church discipline. Matthew chapter 16, look at verses 15 through 19. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Some say he's a prophet, some say he's Elijah. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 through 19, Jesus looks at one of his disciples, this God-man, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Peter? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Look at who he names him as. You are the son of the living God. Where does Peter think Jesus is from? Whose son is this? The son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's where he is. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Oh, we could talk a lot about this. What Peter, what has Peter been given the keys to? He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
the keys to heaven, that, that place that's been locked up and guarded by cherubim. Now Peter is going to have the keys. Well, what are the keys? What is the key? It's the profession of faith that Jesus is what? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. That he's not from earth, that he's the Son of God. Jesus is God in heaven's Son. The, the key is to recognizing and trusting that Jesus is not just a man, but he is the Son of God from heaven, come to earth to be crucified for our sins. Peter didn't understand that. Jesus began to explain in the following verses in Matthew 16, I'm going to go be crucified. And Peter said, I'll never let that happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's what I'm here to do. Go make payment for his sins. So, Jesus sees that what Peter has said, the profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he will be crucified for sin, that that has in it the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's how we get in and out of the kingdom of heaven. And the local church under the authority of Jesus Christ has the authority to use those keys, in a sense, to those who have truly become part of the kingdom of heaven. Look in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20. Got a problem here. One brother in the church sins against another brother. I mean, thank God this never happens. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. In our church membership class, we talk about how this is lowercase c church. This is not the whole church in the whole world. This is your local church. Otherwise, what would that mean today? Email every Christian in the world and get them involved in this. No. If he refuses to listen to them, to the two or three, then tell it to the whole local church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be outside. Let him be considered as outside of you. Truly I say to you, now this is the only other place in Scripture Jesus uses this phrase. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. This is from Matthew 16. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. There's a, there's a correlation between what you're doing on earth, what you're doing in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on the earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Well, there's so much here. But he says in verse 20, giving them authority for where two or three are gathered in my name, where there's a church, there I am among them. You have my permission, my authority to do this. For the sake of time, let me just ask you to see what's happening here. We call this in our church, church discipline. The removing of someone from the church on the earth, the physical, physical, public church on the earth because they refuse to repent of sin. We, we no longer call them part of the church because their life does not match their profession. So, so the church then must make a declaration about someone's faith in Jesus, about their faith and trusting in Christ. And if the church can't say that someone has faith in Jesus then they're saying that person doesn't have, in a sense, to use the passage's language as the keys to heaven. If we cannot affirm by your life that what's coming out of your mouth is true faith in Jesus Christ, we can't say that you're going to make that jump from earth to heaven. 
church membership and heaven's citizenship are supposed to be coordinate. If you don't actually trust in Christ as the Son of the living God, crucified for your sins, if we can't tell that you are saved by your profession and the life on your earth, what does that mean about the confidence to go into heaven? When the church baptizes someone, when a local church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, crucified for sins and resurrected, when a church who preaches that baptizes someone, and when the church says they are members and we say that they are Christians, it is a public formal statement that they are now, best we can tell, believing in Jesus and therefore citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They're not just here on earth. They're not just part of the local church. We're, we're saying they're citizens of the kingdom of heaven that they've used the keys, so to speak, in, their, in the kingdom of heaven, spiritually speaking. It's an earthly confidence that I or anyone will dwell with God forever is enjoyed by one trusting Jesus as the son of the living God crucified for your sins. If you trust Jesus Christ for the crucifixion of your sins as God's son to reunite man and God, you can trust that you will dwell with God forever. Your confidence in this comes doubly from gathering with the local church who exercises those keys. I'm a part of that church who has declared they think I'm a Christian. I have two grandfathers that have passed away now. One, I have great confidences with the Lord. The other, I do not. My paternal grandfather I met once when I was 16. My dad put me and my brother in the truck, drove us to Columbus, Ohio, just to say that we had met the man. It's the only time I ever met him. He was a drunkard. He was a cuss. Wasn't really too happy that we were there. And my dad had written him letters and tried to share the gospel with him over and over and over. And he refused and he rejected over and over and over. We got word that my grandfather had had a stroke and it didn't even move me, it didn't even phase me, I didn't know the man. My dad drove up to Ohio to see him, had one last conversation with him. My grandfather was in fits, throwing things, cussing at nurses, ripping IVs out, angry, confused, scared, I'm sure. My dad had one last conversation with him before he came home to Texas and it was another rejection of the gospel. We got a call from the nurse to let us know that he had passed away. And she said, I don't know what you said to him while he was here, but right before he passed away, the last day or so, as I recall, he was nice. That gives me some questions. Gives me some curiosity. I'm not saying that I would call it hope. But it makes me wonder what happened there. It makes me wonder if something happened there. It makes me hope, in a sense, wish that something did happen there. Like the thief on the cross who had confidence and assurance. I don't have much confidence. I don't know. 
my maternal grandfather, I grew up going to church with him every Sunday. Didn't matter if I was at grandpa's house from out of town, we went to church. Heard the gospel preached at those churches. My grandfather died, he died a member of Parkside Baptist Church in Denison, Texas. He'd been on mission trips to take the gospel to Chile. He was generous, he was kind most of the time. I have some confidence that that grandfather is with the Lord. Are you trusting in Christ? I have a lot of confidence. Trusting in Christ, but you go to church, but that church has never really affirmed you as a member of that church? Can I even pushing away from letting anyone make a declaration about you and your faith? Maybe you say that you're a Christian, someone says that they're a Christian, but they hate gathering around preaching and the Bible and fellowship with Christians. Maybe someone's statement of faith is just simply, yeah, one day we're, we're all going to go up to the, to the Texas in the sky. Well, the farther you get away from a church on earth that is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, exercising the keys, as we say, by practicing church membership and church discipline, actually watching over one another's life, the farther you get away from that, the less confidence that you can have. When it comes down to it, the answer really becomes, I don't know. Is my maternal grandfather saved? I don't know like God knows. Is my paternal grandfather saved? I don't know like God knows. I know that God is the creator and God is the judge and he's on the throne and his judgments are perfect. But we can have earthly confidence about future dwelling with God forever when our faith is affirmed and testified and seen and watched by other brothers and sisters who are believing the same gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is God's son, that he came from heaven down to earth to die for our sins. He rose again to take us there to be with God. When the time comes, the God makes heaven and earth one place and he dwells with us. Until then, our term, our confidence, God has given us these earthly terms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy that you give us in Jesus Christ. We're separated because of our sin. We deserve judgment because of our sin. In your kindness, you have come in the form of your Son to bridge heaven and earth, to make a payment for sin so that we could again be with God in fellowship spiritually now, but truly dwelling with God perfectly forever. When in the new heavens and new earth, the city of God comes down. No more copies. No more shadows. No more limits. Just you here with your people again. Would you help us be honest with ourselves about our own confidence? 
Would you help us have faith to accept your judgment? Would you help us know the true hope and confidence for dwelling with you forever? Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.